This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here today. And on this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Monica Yoon, whose second poetry collection, Ignatz, was a finalist for the National Book Award. Welcome, Monica. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. Now, the poem you've chosen to read today is Passing Through Indian Territory by Afa Michael Weaver. Uh, Tell me, what was it about this poem that drew you to it? Well, it's an odd little poem, and it's a little bit mysterious. I think all paintings are made of paint, and all poems and other texts are made of words. And for some reason, some paintings seem to be made of paint more insistently than others. And this poem seems to be made of words more insistently than other poems. So I was I was struck by that my first read through, and I just kept reading it over and over again, trying to figure out why that was, what it is that caused me to feel like I was moving from abstraction to figuration and then back again. Well, is there a particular usage that uh, that you'd point to in that regard, as, as we're about to hear the poem, of course, but in anticipation of that, is there something that you would point to? Well, it's a poem that pays particular attention to little words, especially to prepositions, which are strung together in a way that becomes increasingly improbable as the poem goes on, especially considering that the poem is a single sentence. So you find yourself paying attention to words you usually ignore, like on or of or to, which start to stitch the poem together and to create their own very, very subtle rhythm. Now, would you say that there is a reason why it's a single sentence, or is it just... Let me show you that I can do this in one sentence. Well, I think, and you'll you'll hear this as we're reading the poem, but the poem talks about sort of compressing layers and layers of things together to form a sort of warmth level, you know, things like box tops, and, you know, perhaps you could think of somebody putting newspapers under a coat, something like that. And I think that something of this compression is going on in this poem. There's an idea by this continued layering of images that you arrive at something compressed, something that actually ends up being a 14-line sonnet. There's also a compression, perhaps, of some of the key components in the genre of the Western. Mm-hmm. I mean, we recognize, uh, obviously, the horse, but also at the very end of the poem, there's a, an, a, an image of an uncle who has committed a killing. So that's, there's almost the beginnings, at least, of a revenge tale, which, of course, is a feature of 
of so many uh, Westerns. Well, you start off with the title, Passing Through Indian Territory. Of course, Indian Territory is a term we haven't used in decades. It's uh, something that instantly invokes a tragedy, uh, that invokes the expulsion and genocide of the tribes who used to inhabit what was called Indian Territory in the center of the country. And so as soon as we start the poem, we know it's going to be a ghost story and in some way a ghost Western. And the way in which various levels of present and past keep showing up and then receding through the various compressed layers of the poem is one of the things that attracted me most to it. It's difficult to use the word territory in any literary context without thinking of Huckleberry Finn. (laughs) I'm used to thinking of territories through my own readings of such children's tales as The Little House on the Prairies, books, all of those, and the idea of Native Americans, uh, Indians, being the occupiers of this land, this land being haunted. Uh, The poem starts off with the speaker's voice being most dominant, and at some point, about halfway through the poem, the poem becomes taken over by ghosts. You start to hear about the horses, and you start to hear about the people, and you start to think about this one particular horse. You know, we shouldn't postpone any longer (laughs) hearing the poem read by yourself, and it's uh, Afa Michael Weaver's Passing Through Indian Territory read by Monica Yoon. On horseback, I tell them to imagine me on horseback going back to Boston, an oversized wool overcoat on top of layers of things that make themselves warm against me, old tops of boxes of pictures of horses pressed flat to mesh and weave like cloth. I tell them it might take me a few months to get home because I like to stop when I travel, pull over so I can rest. And what about falling asleep on the horse? What about what I did not imagine? Smokestack man slumped down, snoring in the saddle, sliding over to the edge of the grace of horses, their mercy, forgiveness even for people who forget how the lines between territories are made of the flesh of ghosts who had no words for where land ends, or where land begins, or why there is a horse waiting for me to answer for the uncle who killed her. That was Passing Through Indian Territory by Afa Michael Weaver, which was published in the December 3, 2012 issue of the magazine. What an extraordinary poem. Um, I'm quite taken by the insistence, for example, that I like to stop when I travel, pull over so I can rest. Though, of course, the last thing the poem wants to do, or certainly the last thing it does, is to stop and rest. Well, the poem won't let us rest, and it continues even after the speaker has, in some ways, passed out of consciousness. You have this wonderful image of this slumped-over, snoring speaker, and yet the poem goes on and is taken over by those who have not been speaking yet, the horses, the ghosts, uh, those who used to inhabit the land, those who are in some ways still inhabiting his memory, and then resolving into the memory of this specific horse. I cheated a little. I know from reading some of his past work that I think the horse he's referring to there is an Appaloosa, which, of course, was a horse that is associated with the Nez Perce uh, Mm -hmm. Indian tribes up in the Pacific Northwest. 
And I think I read that Weaver was gifted with an Appaloosa filly as a young boy, and then the filly had to be destroyed. It was in some ways mentally unstable and mm-hmm. had to be killed. And this, he has a wonderful poem about this, and this continues to haunt him the memory of what happened to the horse and his own culpability in what had happened to the horse. The story of the Nez Perce, as we know them, of course, that's the French version of their name, the Pierce Noses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not their own name for themselves, uh, which, of course, in itself is a telling fact about them. But their own story, I mean, it's hard to distinguish which tribe uh, had it worst, but they certainly had it hard. No, they were absolutely... Uh first tried in as many ways to cooperate with the increasingly unreasonable demands of the government in terms of moving, finally could take no more and were massacred. You know, that line that I mentioned, I like to stop where I travel, pull over so I can rest, is is an example of the poem arguing against itself. There are a couple of moments earlier on, the first line or two, where the poem is sort of arguing very much for itself, as it were, in terms of its method. For example, on horseback going back to Boston, on top of layers of things and then old tops of boxes, in many situations, uh, the feeling would be that those words are much too uh, close uh, and that the propinquity of those words is problematic. But here, of course, it supports the idea again that everything is squashed in. Yes, everything's compressed as if it were a car going through a compactor and you have words like back and back and back happening three times in the first two lines of the poem. You have oversized and then overcoat. You have, of course, top and top. And the overall feeling is almost one of tectonic plates of a sort of instability that we know what these, you know, very simple words mean, but that that meaning keeps shifting, keeps changing as we go through the layers of the poem and the layers of history. What I really like about this poem is the fact that it looks as if it's terrifically simple to do, almost throw away, almost disposable. But actually the skill, the craft that has gone into making this poem is really considerable. Absolutely. And to have the poem in some ways render the imagined horseback journey, to have that slow but constant rhythm just refusing to stop, pushing through exhaustion, pushing through conscious thought, pushing in some way through the speaker's own intention for the poem. The speaker starts out very confidently saying, I tell them, this unspecified them, to imagine me on horseback. But by the end, he's in some ways succumbed to his own rhythm. He's lost control of the poem. The poem is taken over again by ghosts. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. 
You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> now in the June 1st, 2015 issue of The New Yorker, we published your poem, Monica Yoon, your poem, Goldacre, which you're about to read for us now. But before we hear it, is there anything you'd like to say that might be useful for us as it goes past our ear? I always ask this question, I know. But the fact is that it's useful, perhaps, to have a a little warning of a word like grommeted, for example, which is probably not a word we use all that much. I love the word grommeted because, uh, you know, grommet is something that you encounter, I guess, in sailing or maybe a shoelace hole is a kind of a grommet. Uh, it is to puncture something in a functional way. It is to create a hole for a certain kind of use. You can buy these little things called grommet makers, even as you can buy sort of button holders. It suggests that there is some kind of support system for the edge of the hole, right? There's a, there's a strengthening mechanism. It's often a piece of metal. Yes, it's usually rimmed in some ways to make it sturdier and longer lasting. I don't think Dr. Johnson ever got round to defining a grommet, but it would be great to just imagine how he would have gone about it. The man, of course, he described as a net as a series of holes joined together by string. But in any case, what else might we think about here as we embark on the poem? Well, this poem started off as kind of an anti-carpe diem poem, and specifically as a poem against Twitter. I was thinking about why I don't tweet and uh, what it was in me that somehow finds the idea unappealing. And so I started off with that in mind. And then at some about halfway through, I change my mind and I start to question my own motivations in my rather fastidious refusal. Now, Twitter is not mentioned as such here, I believe. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, the starting point of the poem is the word digitize. And I was kind of thinking of digitized communication, and in particular the way digitized communication often involves a quantization, uh, the way in which information is bundled into these packets, of which Twitter is you know, perhaps our best example. Now, this is a sequence. Um, it, it's a sequence of component parts of the of the poem that are um, delineated by, as I see it here, by asterisks. Tell me about the asterisk. I think that the asterisk is something here that allows me a little bit of time and allows hopefully the reader a little bit of time to regroup, to say, okay, I've thought through this, and now we've arrived at what might be a sort of branching point. We've arrived at a place where, okay, this thought might develop further, or it might start to double back on itself. And in this particular poem, I think I wanted to show the stopping points of that thought process, because it would have seemed inaccurate to say, oh, this thought is a continuous flow. You know, it's a shortish poem, but the fact that it is sectionalized uh, and the fact that the sections are sort of at slight angles to one another, if one might put it that way. I'm not sure if that's exactly the way to put it. But they are at once discrete and yet connected. And I mean, the, the poetic sequence is a truly 
a wonderfully capacious form. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think of it in terms of angles like driving down something like Lombard Street in San Francisco where you're still on the same street but maybe you're seeing a different angle on the same street by virtue of pivoting a little bit at various points along the journey. The title is Goldacre. Uh, what's the resonance of Goldacre for you? So I have a sequence called Blackacre, uh, which is based on a 17th century English legal term, Blackacre. Uh, you can think of Blackacre as being to property as John Doe is to a person. So John Doe is a placeholder term uh, for a hypothetical person. Uh, same with Blackacre. So I use this as the basis for some poems in my book that think about the question of what we are allotted and what is the power of the imagination to transform what is allotted to us, what is given. And that allotment can take various forms. In this particular poem, what we are allotted is a morning. Let's hear Goldacre. Goldacre, digitize, from the Latin to finger or handle, as if to sink your fingers deeply into this flood of light. Hard not to grip, hard not to shape handfuls, loaves for the hooded basket, something to store away for later, something to place upon the slab. The light a richer color now, wrong to regret the reddish undertones of day, wrong to regard them as a kind of ripening. The young morning grommeted with minutes, threaded with wisps of wool. No signs of resentment furrow the infinite amenability of dawn. No sounds suggesting discord from the songbirds tethered to their wheels. The songbirds tethered to their wheels for some reason conjure up uh, an image uh, of... Uh, Yeats's Singing Birds mm -hmm. from Byzantium. I, there's not a lot of evidence really within the poem for me to do that, and yet I find myself doing it. Why is that? I'm not quite sure why you in particular have that resonance. I, I have my suspicions. I but should be able to answer that. <laughs> <in fact. laughs> uh, and actually, I wasn't thinking of Yeats's, uh, Yeats's Golden Bird there, although I often do. But what I was thinking of, and what Yeats actually might have been thinking of, is the Sibyls, the oracles. And I had been doing a lot of reading around Greek religion at the time. And I say religion rather than mythology, right. because I think that religious ritual is a way in which mystery is harnessed for use, is made useful. Uh, you could think of mystery as being grommeted so that it becomes functional. And of course, what the Sibyls, uh, the Cumaean Sibyl and the Delphic Sibyl and other Sibyls did was they took inspiration and they tried to make it into usable forms, into these prophecies which people would come and, you know, through a sort of transaction would acquire these prophecies. And so I was thinking of this harnessing of what is inchoate and mysterious for use throughout this poem, um, starting with my idea, I guess, of Twitter, which of course is a bird image, if you look mm -hmm. at the icon, right? and how what is the kind of ebb and flow of experience becomes quantified into these little 140 character snippets, and then the way in which the Sibyl's encounter with the divine 
uh, also becomes packaged in these little usable bits. Let me ask you what may seem a rather bold question. Why is Twitter mentioned in the poem? I think that the sentiment that I was groping for, and this poem is very much a process of groping for meaning, uh, was a little bit more general than Twitter in particular. And so I didn't want people to say, oh, this is your Twitter poem. I wanted them to think a little more about why is it that we try to make our experience usable. Um, I think another section of the poem talks about loaves for the hooded basket, uh, which has to do with the offerings that were made in the course of various Greek religious rituals where little corn-shaped loaves were put into baskets and offered to the goddess. And so I was thinking of, you know, what does it mean not to make little loaf-shaped nuggets of your experience? What would it mean to allow it in some ways to flow through your fingers without grasping at it? Monica Yoon, thank you so much for, for uh, sharing that with us and for talking with us today. Goldacre by Monica Yoon, as well as Ava Michael Weaver's poem, Passing Through Indian Territory, may be found on NewYorker.com, Ava Michael Weaver's latest book, City of Eternal Spring, and Monica Yoon's most recent, Ignatz. But she has a new book coming, Blackacre, And we look forward to that. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Author's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. And you may hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. Now, the theme music is the Pitnacree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas, and it comes from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and until next time, goodbye. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.